We are in the middle of an Exodus series, and um, we've been going through the series for a little bit. We took a little break for Palm Sunday and for Easter, and today we're going to be in Exodus chapter 7, so I'm going to encourage you to grab your Bibles, and uh, we're going to share a message entitled, To Believe the Lord. To Believe the Lord. (sighs) There is a subtitle to this message. The subtitle is, God Gave Pharaoh the Finger. And you will see where that comes from later on in the message. And the reason why it's a subtitle is because I conferred with my co-pastor that that should not be the main title that we put on the website. But I, I will confess to you that I've been wanting to give the message, God gave Pharaoh the finger for years, and I'm finally at a place where I can say it out loud. And hopefully you won't condemn me for it. Is that okay? Is this a safe place to give that title? Okay, we have an applause. Thank you very much. God gave Pharaoh the finger. So anyway, uh, let me uh, pray for us. We'll get to our reading and then uh, share a little bit of teaching. Lord, I thank you for the gathering of this group of people. What an amazing gathering that you have brought together. People from all walks of life, all generations, all different places of Silicon Valley and beyond. And I pray that as we have um, come to this place and desired to worship you and to honor you and to learn more and to grow more, Um, That through this message, and mostly, of course, through your word, our hearts and our lives and our souls would be touched and we would be uh, transformed once again in new and refreshing ways. These are not just words. These are your words. And may they reach us in a new way. And I pray in your name. Amen. Exodus chapter 7, to believe the Lord or, (laughs) I just want to say it out loud one more time, God gave Pharaoh the finger. Exodus chapter 7, starting in verse 1. Then the Lord said to Moses, See, I have made you like God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron will be your prophet. You are to say everything I command you, and your brother Aaron is to tell Pharaoh to let the Israelites go out of his country. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and though I multiply my signs and wonders in Egypt, he will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt, and with mighty acts of judgment, I will bring out my divisions, my people, the Israelites. And the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring the Israelites out of it. Moses and Aaron did just as the Lord commanded them. Moses was 80 years old, and Aaron 83 when they spoke to Pharaoh. Verse 8. Then the Lord said to Pharaoh and Aaron, When Pharaoh says to you, Perform a miracle... Then say to Aaron, take your staff and throw it down before Pharaoh, and it will become a snake. So Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and did just as the Lord commanded. Aaron threw down his staff down in front of Pharaoh and his officials, and it became a snake. Pharaoh then summoned wise men and sorcerers, and the Egyptian magicians also did the same things by their secret arts. Each one threw down his staff, and it became a snake. But Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. Yet Pharaoh's heart became hard, and he would not listen to them, just as the Lord had said. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is unyielding. He refuses to let the people go. Go to Pharaoh in the morning as he goes out to the river. Confront him on the bank of the Nile and take in your hand the staff that was changed into a snake. Then say to him, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has sent me to say to you, let my people go so that they may worship me in the wilderness. But until now, you have not listened. This is what the Lord says. By this, you will know that I am the Lord. 
with the staff that is in my hand. I will strike the water of the Nile, and it will be changed into blood. The fish in the Nile will die, and the river will stink. The Egyptians will not be able to drink its water. The Lord said to Moses, Tell Aaron, take your staff and stretch out your hand over the waters of Egypt, over the streams, over the canals, over the ponds, and over the reservoirs, and they will turn to blood. Blood will be everywhere in Egypt, even in vessels of wood and stone. Moses and Aaron did just as the Lord had commanded. He raised his staff in the presence of Pharaoh and his officials and struck the water of the Nile, and all the water was changed into blood. The fish in the Nile died, and the river smelled so bad that the Egyptians could not drink its water. Blood was everywhere in Egypt. But the Egyptian magicians did the same things by their secret arts, and Pharaoh's heart became hard. He would not listen to Moses and Aaron, just as the Lord had said. Instead, he turned and went into his palace and did not take even this to heart. And all the Egyptians dug along the Nile to get drinking water because they could not drink the water of the river. Seven days passed after the Lord struck the Nile. We have come to the portion of Exodus that is perhaps one of the most famous, although Exodus is a quite famous passage, for these ten things that are happening. What are known as the plagues of Egypt. Plagues of blood, frogs, gnats, flies, the sickness and the disease on the livestock, the boils that are on the hands, the hail and fire or the lightning and the thunder that comes from heaven, the locust, the darkness, and of course the death of the firstborn. Now, when we come to this particular passage, I will tell you that it's an extremely powerful passage in that we are all captivated by the miraculous events that are happening through these plagues. And there's some really deep, beautiful imagery. Many of you have actually studied this. You can find this on Wikipedia and all sorts of websites. That each and every one of these plagues, each and every one of these horrendous things that are happening to the people of Egypt, specifically to Pharaoh and his country, are confronting essentially the polytheism, the deification, the gods and the goddesses that exist in Egypt, primarily Pharaoh. And this makes sense because on Pharaoh's crown is a snake, um, and it's a symbol of deity. It's a symbol of God incarnate in this world. The snake throughout history actually has been quite a, an amazing symbol. It molts, as many of you know, and it leaves behind its body, uh, what ancient people thought was its body, its skin, that layer. And that regeneration of the snake has always had mystical meaning in the ancient mind. And so the snake became this picture of healing. It became this picture of God. It came, became this picture of deity. Um, it became this picture of power. And Pharaoh himself is holding on to that and saying, I am that. And so these plagues come deep into that message, deep into the idea that Pharaoh is himself proclaiming to be God. And these plagues are confronting the idea that Pharaoh is claiming to have that deity and basically saying, you are not that deity. And let's go back to Genesis 1, by the way. All of the things in this world were created by one God, Elohim, the creator God, the God of the Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob. So that's one layer of it. We have this layer of confrontation to the gods and the goddesses of ancient Egypt, including Pharaoh. Then there's another layer. There's a ton of material that exists that is going to take these plagues and do radical scientific historical research to de declare to you exactly how these plagues 
have happened to show you all the scientific reasons. For example, did you know that during flood season, the sentiment that uh, comes down off the mountains of Ethiopia, which flow into the Nile, is a red sentiment. And that sediment, sentiment? That red sediment comes into the river that actually gives it that darkish, reddish, brownish hue. And because of the sediment, some of the bacteria also grows exponentially as a result of that, that flooding. And then the, the Nile turns into that particular color. And as a result of that, frogs can't live in the Nile anymore. So they come out of the Nile and they start to flood all the... So you have all of this mathematical calculations of all of these things. Um, and it's fascinating to study, actually. It's really intriguing to get down and dirty into what would this actually have looked like? How would this have actually worked? And especially since we have evidence that this stuff actually still happens today. I remember driving in the car, actually, not too long ago, a couple years ago, and driving from Southern California over to Nevada. And in one of the stops that we had at a gas station, there was an actual swarm of locusts or grasshoppers or some sort of insects that were that big. And my car was, you know, driving over. And you can hear, I'm sorry, it's, it's ah, to hear, okay, y- yeah, you know. And you can't open the door because then they're in, they're in the car and they're all over the windshield. It's an incredible feeling and an incredible sight. And so as a result of, oh, doesn't that just give you the heebie-jeebies right there? So these are actual things, actual, actual natural events that have occurred. And as a result of these phenomena that have happened and things that you can actually research and things that you can go and study and you can actually go and experience, we have, uh, as our culture has taken that on almost as one of two possibilities. One, that these stories, these plagues, they really don't matter all that much because honestly, they're just natural phenomena. And the Bible isn't all that special because look, we we see exactly how that happens. Or we can see that as how God has manipulated the natural phenomena in amazing ways. The other way to think about it is that these are so much part of the natural phenomena that it is once again communicating that God is actually in control. That's the great miracle, that God is in control of all of these things. I find these kinds of hopeful explanations for the plagues to be interesting, to be intriguing, but somehow for me, it seems to miss something much bigger, much more profound, much more meaningful about what these plagues are meant to communicate. And part of that actually comes through the text. Part of that is illuminated by the story that we just read. Moses comes to Pharaoh and he takes his stick and he throws it down. And, he's, and that stick becomes a snake right in front. But did you notice Pharaoh has people in his kingdom that what? Can do the exact same thing. And this, this is perplexing to me because we see these plagues blood, frogs, livestock, hail, and we think that the plagues themselves, the the act themselves, points to the miraculous, points to the divine, points to God being in control. But this, the, the idea that the magicians of Egypt are actually able to do the same things that Moses is able to do, um, is perplexing. It kind of removes that away from, well, if If God can do it, well, then these magicians can do it. It's kind of like um, a special magic trick. It's kind of like, and we can see it this way. Like, 
Here's my Bible, and this is exactly how it was taught to me. But when I, go, when I got older and when I got wiser, then I realized that there were amazing stories in the Bible. But then I came to spark and realized that these stories are actually much more brilliant, much more powerful. Now, beautiful, isn't it? Yes? It's, it's just a trick. It's just a trick. Now, if I performed this trick for you, would you now say, wow, isn't that God? How many of you... Yeah, so you're skeptical. <laughs> well, maybe I can prove it by this way. Melting rubber bands. Have you guys seen melting rubber bands before? No? You've never seen this before? You pull them apart, pull them together. Now, if you rub them close enough, look, watch, 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 watch. Ooh, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Okay, so <laughs> it feels as if some ways, if we're going to read these stories as if the trick itself is going to be the divine message, then why in the world are these magicians, these sorcerers, these magic people of Egypt able to do these things? And why is it that we read the story in many ways to suggest that it's the signs and the wonders, it's the miraculous nature of these events that is going to cause Pharaoh to believe, it's going to cause the Israelites to believe, and ultimately... Today, the reason why we do all the history is we try to prove to the world even today, to a very skeptical world, to a very scientific world, to a world that is very intellectual and thoughtful, we're trying to prove to that particular world, this is true. This is real. Let me just show you how the hail worked. This is true. This is real. Let me show you how the blood worked. This is true. This is real. Let me show you exactly how the flies and the gnats and the locusts are going to... I feel like in some ways that just misses the grander story and the grander point. Here's the deal. All of these signs and these wonders are actually natural phenomena. And there's a couple ways that we need to look at this. First of all, David, where's David? Can I have, come on up here. David's going to help me. Everybody say, hi, David. Hi, David. Hello. Hello. Are you going to be safe? Yes. Yes. Grab a stick. Now, <clears throat> this is essentially what happens. Moses and Aaron, they go to Pharaoh, and Moses has a stick. And what does Moses do? Again, as a sign, as a communication of God's presence, of God's power, God's deity, what does Moses do to the stick? I don't, do you realize what miracle just happened here? Do, do you realize that was an incredible miracle? Do you see that? Yes. You see it. Of course you see it. Do you see that? So there's a couple things to see here. Number one, what actually happened, do it again. Oh, careful. What actually happened is actually quite miraculous. Think about this for a second. I said something. Neurons were firing in my brain. Percussive sound waves were coming out of my mouth. They entered into your ear. They resonated in the bones of your ear. They got translated through electrical circuits into your brain. And you understood, you comprehended, and the stick landed on the floor. Do you understand how miraculous that is? No, no, you're still not. Okay, I can see that you're not very impressed by this. The stick is actually on the ground. 
That in and of itself, please don't miss this, that in and of itself is miraculous. That any of these things, any of the plagues is happening. That water exists, that blood exists, that Moses is able to do this, is itself miraculous. Did you know you just performed a miracle? Yes. Yes. Good job. Give David a big round of applause. So there's a couple things I want you to see. Number one, that in and of itself is miraculous. You don't have to go off explaining all of the amazing, wild, radical ways in which these plagues have happened. The fact, the fact that any of this happens is a miracle. And in some ways, one of the lessons of this story, because what do the Egyptians do? The Egyptians do the exact same thing. They're able to perform the exact same thing. And in some ways, what we need to see from that is that just as the magicians are able to do what Moses and Aaron are able to do, the entire project itself is an act, is evidence that God is in this world. That's part of the biblical narrative. The the great miracle is not that the water turned into something else. The great miracle is that the water is there in the first place. The great miracle is that Moses himself can actually listen and obey and heed and follow through with God's command. All of these things, all of the the gnats, the flies, the hail, all of that, they're natural phenomena. And the fact that they happen, the fact that they take place, that in and of itself is miraculous. Please don't miss this. I know it may be a little bit confusing because we're like, but, but shouldn't a miracle be much bigger than that? Shouldn't a miracle be much more... Astounding. No, a miracle is exactly what David did. He was able to listen, to hear, to communicate, follow through, participate in an illustration. All of that is miraculous. Last week, when I shared my Easter message, I shared a message entitled, What God has Joined Together, Bringing Together a Bunch of Things. And one of those quotes was from Philip Yancey. Nature and supernature are not two separate worlds, but different expressions of the same reality. To encounter the world as a whole, we need a more supernatural awareness of the natural world. And what I'd like to suggest to you as a first point in this Exodus story as we enter into these plagues is that the very existence of Moses and Aaron themselves, the fact that there's a stick, the fact that there's a fire, the fact that there's a Nile, those things in and of themselves, those are miracles. So we don't need to see this the miracle as just simply the thing that happens as a result of Moses throwing down the the stick becomes a snake. That's the miracle. Part of the miracle, part of the sign, part of the wonder, part of the thing that God is communicating is that Moses threw down a stick, period. That there was communication from God that Moses heard that, well, and actually Moses tells Aaron and then Aaron tells Moses to talk to God. Moses is kind of like this middle-level manager, communicator, the fact that that happens is, is in and of itself miraculous. And part of what we need to see with all these things, again, all of them are mundane, everyday, natural phenomena. When you walk out the door, when you stand up, when you clap, when you say hello, do you realize what miracles are happening 
even in those moments, when you open your refrigerator and you consume food and you're able to energize yourself and you're able to hold a family conference, when you're able to drive, when you're able to teach, when you're able to go to work and create, whenever you're able to do any of those things, all of those things are miraculous. The miraculous happens every single day of your life. And part of the story of this is if we only see the miraculous as those grand gestures of what's happening, then we're going to miss the miracles that happen every single day. And don't miss the beautiful divinity, the very presence of God, the movement of the Holy Spirit in all of the mundane, everyday little things. That's part of why these plagues are natural phenomena. The Bible doesn't say, Exodus story isn't about, and then God created some sort of fantastical electrical plasma from a 14th dimension and radically... It doesn't describe a miracle or a sign and wonder in that way. It describes the sign and the miracle and the wonder through everyday natural phenomena terms, which is to communicate that even the existence of the Nile is a miracle. Are you with me? The fact that you're even sitting here is a miracle. The fact that I can say words out of my mouth and you have some sort of comprehension and understanding is miraculous. And if you talk to any biologist, any physicist, if you want to talk to anybody who does deep science and deep study, the entire universe from this perspective is a miracle to the very, very smallest, to the very, very largest. Explanation. The explanatory power of knowing how things work, etc., etc., does not negate the fact that our mere existence is miraculous. Are you with me? Does this make sense? Don't miss the miracle in the everyday. And that's part of Pharaoh's problem. The magicians are able to do it. Moses is able to do it. That in and of itself is miraculous. That should communicate. But the problem, of course, is that it doesn't communicate. Pharaoh doesn't get it. So here's the rub of the plagues. Are you ready? If it's not a miracle, the Bible describes all of these things not as miracles. In fact, Pharaoh's the one who says, show me a miracle. The Bible describes these as signs and wonders. And the second thing that the Bible describes it as is a great act of judgment. Don't miss this. We think of the plagues in miraculous terms. History Channel, Discovery Channel, trying to figure it all out. The Bible describes the plagues in terms of sign and wonder and a great act of judgment. That's what these things are. So let's get to the story and let's figure out how these miracles work, how these signs and wonders work. We have to ask this question, what's the story? If you've been at Spark for any short period of time, you've heard us say context, history, grand narrative, the full breadth of what's going on. You can't understand Exodus unless you understand Genesis. You can't understand your New Testament unless you understand your Old Testament. You have to have it all. So the question is, what's the backstory? Um, If the miracles or the plagues are the thing, watch this. I'm pretty proud of this one. 
if that's the thing, what's the thing behind the thing? (laughs) We have to ask ourselves, if we're looking at the plagues, which is the thing, we're going to ask the question, what's the thing behind the thing? What is it that makes these plagues so powerful? These stories that we are told, these stories that have been passed down to us, speak to us not in scientific terms, not in mathematical calculations, not in ways in which you and I can walk out the door and do all the, all the charting and the graphing and figuring out exactly how it happens. These stories speak deeply to something much more profound. They speak to our soul. They disrupt our worldview. They challenge what we believe and what we think about the world and about ourselves. And so part of the reason why I spent the first portion of the teaching just talking about minimizing our idea of miracle is because we might miss this piece, how these stories speak to our soul, how they disrupt us, how they transform us, and how even to this day, even in this scientific, intellectual, very educated, collegiate culture that we live in, it speaks powerfully, beautifully, and very wisely. So here's the backstory. The Israelites are multiplying. They are multiplying greatly, the scriptures. Remember the previous teachings that we had had through Exodus 1, 2, 3, and 4? That they were doing exactly what Genesis had commanded, to be fruitful and to multiply. And the problem is not that they were multiplying. The problem is not that they were actually going to do any damage. The problem was Pharaoh considered their multiplication, the fact that they were doing the thing that they were supposed to be doing, which is multiplying and growing and increasing in numbers, he considered that a threat. And he increased DEFCON 5, DEFCON 6, and he considered this a national security threat. He's considering this to be a problem. And by the way, if you're in a position of power and you are holding on to your deity, you're holding on to your kingdom, of course you're going to consider any sort of multiplication, any sort of growth as some sort of infection, some sort of threat, just like this. Of course they're a threat. They're going to overtake me. They're going to overtake my power. They're going to take away the very thing that I hold dear. And so the very beginning of this story begins with Pharaoh having a sense of fear about who the Israelites are and how they're growing and how they're multiplying. And that's exactly what we've talked about before. So remember this backstory. Growth, development, fear. Now, what does Pharaoh do? What is the result? As a result of his fear, Pharaoh takes his power and wields it in one of the most unspeakable ways. He decides to take the children of Israel and do what with them? Cast them into the Nile. This whole symbol of life ultimately becomes a symbol of death. The whole idea that Pharaoh himself is being threatened results in the murder of children in the very thing that was supposed to bring life. As a result of their growth, as a result of their multiplication, Pharaoh reaps upon the people harsh labor, and he treats them as animals. He doesn't treat them as humans. 
He treats them as subhuman and puts them under extreme persecution and slavery and punishment and harsh labor. And so as a result of Pharaoh having fear from the Israelites growing and growing in number, two major things happen. Pharaoh punishes them, oppresses them, puts them under harsh labor and treats them like animals. And when that doesn't work, because they're still growing and growing and growing in numbers, he decides to take their children and throw them into the Nile. Kill them. And the thing that was supposed to give life brings death. So then we get to the miracles, the signs, the wonders. And here's what's so brilliant about how this story unfolds. This word for staff, this word for stick, this word right here is the word mate. Everybody say mate. Mate is used in the Hebrew Bible for stick, for staff, but it's also a word for tribe. Catch this. One potential symbolism in what's happening with Moses throwing down the stick to the ground is to say that the tribe, the people of Israel, who have humanity, who are created in the image of God and the image and the likeness of God, those people have been cast to the ground. And when they are cast to the ground, they become what? They become not a serpent. And here's the key twist. They can become a great beast. The Hebrew behind the word snake is actually the word great beast. And if you go back to the Genesis story, the great beast is the first thing that God creates in the animal kingdom. Moses, symbolically, when he is told to cast down the stick, may be a symbolic meaning of saying that these people of Israel who are supposed to be human, Pharaoh, do you know what you've done to them? You've cast them down to the ground and you created a condition in which you are communicating to them that they are actually less than human. That they do not have the image and the likeness of God. You've actually created them like beasts. You've created them like great, terrifying beasts. And then second, Pharaoh, this whole idea that the Nile is supposed to give you life, the whole idea that this is where your economy is going to grow from, you've turned it into death. You have slaughtered the people. You have chosen to turn this thing, this great life-giving thing, into a weapon. And so therefore, God is taking the staff, the people, again, into the Nile, just like the babies were thrown into the Nile, and showing once again to Pharaoh, this is what you've done. This is what you have done. This is what you have decided to do. This is the image. It's unspeakable. It's horrendous. And how could anybody, any power, any kingdom, any pharaoh, any, anyone in this universe treat another human being or another group of people less than human? And then when you treat them less than human, then their lives, their children are fully dispensable. So what does all of this really say and what does this mean? 
I'll do my best to try to explain this. Again, these are not miracles. They're signs and wonders, and they are great acts of judgment. There's two audiences to these plagues that start with the Nile turning into blood, uh, the uh, staff turning into the snake, and the Nile turning into blood. There's two audiences. The first is that Israel would believe, and the second is that Egypt would know. The first is that Israel would believe, and the second is that Egypt would know. Let's start with Egypt. Let's remember this passage. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and though I multiply my signs and wonders in Egypt, he will not listen to you. Catch this phrase. Pharaoh does not hear the cries of the people. Pharaoh does not hear the wailing of the suffering of the people. Pharaoh does not care. And so these acts, these signs, these wonders, are essentially, once again, acts of judgment against Pharaoh for his actions to the Israelites. Pharaoh, you've decided to turn these people into monsters. And so this stick being thrown at your feet is a symbol and a sign of that. And by the way, remember this story that the staff of Moses, by the way, the staff of Moses and Aaron, eats up the staffs of the magicians. And that word there is not snake. It's the word for staff, the word for tribe. Our tribes will essentially devour your tribes, which is exactly what's going to happen. And these plagues come on Pharaoh more and more and more, and upon Egypt more and more and more. So much so that they just are driving a stake into Pharaoh. This is what you've done to the people. And so these plagues, they're not just miraculous. They are acts of judgment against a king who has perpetrated injustice and oppression and evil against somebody else. Upon the third plague, it's the Egyptians, the magicians of Egypt, that say to Pharaoh, this is the finger of God. And notice this phrase, but Pharaoh's heart was hard and he would not listen just as the Lord had said. And no matter what kind of judgment God is placing upon Pharaoh and upon Egypt, he will not listen. But the magicians, the ones who know, the ones who understand how this world works, the ones who can manipulate, they are the ones who finally say, hey, Pharaoh, this isn't just about the signs anymore. There's something bigger going on. This is the finger of God. Almost as if to say, he's pointing right at you. You've been an oppressive king. You've been an oppressor. You've been an unjust ruler. Listen. Stop. And in some ways, this passage, as well as the whole motif of the Exodus story, is kind of like saying, if Pharaoh had just simply repented, if Pharaoh had simply recognized, oh my goodness, I had done this evil thing, then maybe we wouldn't have actually needed the Exodus. But the whole point of the story is that no matter how much God is communicating an act of judgment to Pharaoh, he will not listen. He becomes more and more strengthened in his heart, which is the message. So that's the message to the Egyptians. The first is, Pharaoh, this is an act of judgment against you. You have been an evil ruler. These signs, these wonders are an act of judgment against you for being that evil. But the second, and this is where it gets really, really beautiful. The second is so that they 
the Israelites would know and believe in the Lord. I want you to imagine for a second a time in your life, a time in history, or maybe even you don't even have to imagine, you can remember, in which there was a life that was lived, a circumstance, a people group that was under oppression, pain, suffering, injustice. When you personally felt that, when there was an oppressor, there was an aggressor, and you were the victim, and you had to bear the weight, you had to bear the circumstances, you had to bear all of the evil of this person. Feel that for a moment. What does that feel like? What does that leave you with? What kind of sense of humanity and presence when that happens to you, when you are the victim of oppression, when you are the victim of pain, when you're the victim of injustice? What does that do to you? Think and consider for a moment of what that would be. And now think and consider for a second. If God shows up and just simply does a miracle, does that solve the problem of oppression? And I'm going to suggest that the Exodus story is saying it doesn't. That's not the point of the signs and the wonders. Listen carefully to the backstory, the thing behind the thing. God tells Moses, go, assemble the elders of Israel and say to them, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, of Jacob, appeared to me and, and said, I have watched over you and I have seen what has been done to you in Egypt. I have watched over you and I have seen what has been done to you in Egypt. Go back to that place where you were a victim, where oppression, injustice, evil was done to you. A miracle doesn't communicate redemption. What communicates is a God who has seen, and I have watched over you, and I know what has been done to you. And this next line, and that is what caused the Israelites to believe. Belief did not come as a result of some sort of supernatural, wild, magical thing that happened. Belief came because through those symbols, through these plagues, the Israelites understood. And when they heard, that the Lord was concerned about them and had seen their misery. That is when they bowed down and they worshiped. When they understood that God was concerned about them. Now catch this. Judgment to Egypt communicates something about love, concern to Israel. And it's those two things that come together in this beautiful story, in this motif. Rabbi David Foreman says this, What is justice for the oppressor is the beginning of empathy for the victim. What is justice for the oppressor is the beginning of empathy for the victim. And that is exactly what happens. Moses casts down the stick. 
the tribes. It becomes a snake. It becomes a great beast. And the Israelites know. Oh, you know. That's exactly what Pharaoh did to us. God has heard. God has seen. God understands. And can you imagine having worked and suffered and labored on the banks of the Nile where your children were thrown in to die every single day, being reminded of that? Does anybody know? Does anybody hear? Has anybody seen? Yes, God has heard. God has seen. And the liberation begins to come when God, through these acts, through these symbols, through turning that Nile into blood, which is an act of judgment to the Egyptians and an act of empathy to the Israelites, is when they start to begin to be free. Somebody has heard me. Somebody has heard my cries. Somebody has listened to my pain and my suffering. So here's what I'm going to suggest to you as a result of this. We're going to get caught up in how did these plagues happen? Sure, all the time. But here's the great sign. The great sign is that through the plagues, God was revealing his empathy. I feel what you feel. I have seen your suffering. I am concerned with what it is that you are going through. I know that somebody has done you wrong. I have seen it. I know. The great wonder is that The wonders, these symbols, these signs are showing God's compassion. And if you want a miracle, the great miracle is that even under the oppression, even under that, the Israelites believe. And it is that belief in a God that has empathy and compassion and love and care. That is the miracle that begins the liberation. These signs, these wonders were doing two things, a couple things for the Israelites. Number one, there's a future coming. There's a future of freedom, of liberation, the end result. We got to get out of Egypt. We got to have an exodus. We got to be free. But these plagues were also communicating something deeply about the past, which is to say, God was speaking to the Israelites. I've seen you. I've understood. And then also, I would suggest another layer, which is as these Israelites are under this oppression and under this evil, can you imagine what it feels like to be there? Most of us in this room actually know what that feels like. And when God brings his judgment, his acts of judgment to Pharaoh and his acts of empathy to Israel, He liberates them from whatever shame and guilt they might themselves feel. And I would offer that to you. That if you feel like you've been a victim of evil and oppression, most victims that I've worked with, that I've talked to, that I've shared with, most people in the justice ministry know that it's usually victims who feel the most shame. Not the oppressors. That's why they're oppressing. The oppressors feel no shame. Pharaoh has no care. His heart is still hard. But it's the victims that feel like, did I do something to deserve this? What was it about me? Perhaps the first act of freedom, the idea of liberation, the first act of liberation is an act of empathy. It's to rehumanize the oppressed, to rehumanize the victim, to rehumanize the broken, to rehumanize the disheartened. 
That's what these signs and wonders are. Acts of judgment to Egypt. Acts of empathy to Israel. I have seen you. I'm concerned. I know what you've gone through. I understand. And once Israel heard that God has heard them, that's when they believed. And that's what it means to believe. And that's why God gave Pharaoh the finger. Still love. 
I pray that we don't get terribly distracted with trying to mathematically calculate everything that happens in the scriptures. Those are wonderful, interesting conversations to have, and let's continue to have those. But let us not miss the signs, the wonders, the acts of judgment, the communication of God's empathy and compassion. I know that there's people in this room and people listening to this message who feel so much like they are under that oppression, that someone has done them wrong, that someone has done something horribly unjust to them. Do you feel and sense that God has heard your cry and that your first act towards liberation is not some sort of miraculous thing that's going to happen? Your first act towards liberation is a God that feels what you feel, knows what you've gone through, has compassion, and has seen you. Let me end with a blessing. May you experience these signs and these wonders every single day of your life. May you feel and experience the empathic, compassionate God. And may you come to believe and trust in God's redemption and his freedom and his liberation and be taken as his own child. Amen.